0: of the Let's See, Forget podcast, historical podcast by Tenementian Media. I'm your host of this episode, Davey. And on this episode, we'll be talking about the beginning stages of the bauxite industry in Jamaica. It is in the hope that later down, we can um, do a similar episode on the Guyanese bauxite industry. Um, But yeah, um, later down in the episode, um, I will be joined by my co-host, Yezimeh veteran, politician, retired now, and a former VP of the Bustamante Industrial Trade Union. You understand? Um, and one of the most enigmatic, is I think that's the word I'm trying to use, enigmatic um, politicians <laughs> in Caribbean history. Um, Perennial Charles, so he'll be here. Um, you're going to hear from him because he's going to tell us some things that is necessary to tell the story of the bauxite industry. To be noted, this is the beginning stages. So, we're going to talk about the 50s, the 60s. Yeah, basically. Um, everything else that's happened after that, we already did on another episode. Not on this podcast, but other podcast, But we'll mention that later on, Still. See? Now, to see all the sources used on this episode, you can go ahead and check out our website, www.tenamintianmedia.com. Right, that's www.tenamintianmedia.com. Come, just click podcast, click let's see And then, yeah, you're going to see all the sources used on this episode. That's the books, the articles, the YouTube video, a bugger things. Zine. um, yeah, while you're over there, you can also make a nice donation to the yard. Yeah, there's no cap for how much you can or cannot give. If you just want to support the, the work that we do, then that will be great. We also have a Patreon, which is like a dollar a month um there is no perks but i mean if you want to support you and just can but every time for make a like a donation but you just want to donate and just make it easy flowing patreon is also there there's also an anchor thing there's an anchor thing but i don't know that works so but if you know it works in you know, do canada as well um but yeah yeah so yeah one of those nice things um Yeah, so let's begin the episode, shall we? So we're going to talk about the beginning stage and the backside industry and vibes. Alright, so the presence of high alumina content soils in Jamaica was reported by geologists as long as 1869, In the year 1938, infertile red soils in the southern parishes of Manchester and St. Elizabeth were analyzed by the government's agricultural chemists and high alumina contents were noted. The commercial possibilities attached to these findings were first appreciated four years later by Sir Alfred de Costa, a landowner in the northern parish of St. Anne. Concerned by the low corn yields obtained on red soils that were being cropped under a wartime food production campaign, the Costa sent soil, soil samples to the authorities for a chemical analysis. These showed a forty five to fifty percent alumina content. The Imperial Institute in London was subsequently consulted and the findings were also brought to the attention of the mines attention of the Ministry of Mines in Ontario, Canada. Canadian geologists from Alumina Limited, Montreal, gave preliminary estimates of boxer reserves of between 5 and 10 million tons. Subsequent investigations resulted in increase of this figure to 100 million tons in 1943, to 200 million tons in 1944, and to 315 million tons in 1953. Current estimates of reserves of commercial bauxite exceed 500 million tons, giving Jamaica about 12% of the world's total reserves of the ore at the time. Now, to be known, this whole industry was of high importance because, like, it was directly after the war. And this is where you see a lot of research being poured to see, like, what's Jamaica value, right? Because what was happening is that... um, the war resulted in a supply and demand problem right basically what we're having right now but in 2021 our supply and demand issue is a supply supply chain issue right this is a global supply chain issue of just the transportation of goods um but then what was happening is is that the the supply of metal right was not meeting up with the demand of metals because a lot of the metals used a lot of the metals that, that, that in the industry had at the time was going into building war machinery, right? So directly after the war, you had this high demand for metals, but like you had to wait for metals to come because they use a lot of metals in the war, right? So bauxite, so this is, so bauxite, so the bauxite industry become extremely important because it was going to be used as a, a good substitute for metal, right? So it was like, yo, is it me? Yeah. Vibes. Mm-hmm. So after a two year period during which a government proclamation declaring all backside to be the property of the Crown, because remember this is still in we we're still under colonization at the time. And the Crown owned all the land. Well, they still own all the land today. But um Yeah. <laughs> Life. Um, uh, we'll just continue. Um uh prospecting and ownership rights were thrown open in 1944 so they basically invited interesting companies to come and acquire land that was rich in bauxite. basically you know setup shop so yeah so in 1947 the mining law was enacted in terms of which mining regulations were published detailing inter the conditions of which mining regulations were published um Meanwhile, intensive research to find an economical, viable extraction process for Jamaica bauxite was being pursued in the United States. It's always the States. In 1950, Reynolds Jamaica Mines Limited, a subsidiary of Reynolds Metals Company of Richmond, Virginia, was in a position to commence construction work in Jamaica. And two years later, the first shipload of bauxite ore left Jamaica for commercial refining in the U.S. So they begin the first transnational corporation to tap into the industry in Jamaica. A second company, Kaiser Bauxite Company, a subsidiary of Kaiser Aluminum and Chemical Corporation registered in Nevada, climaxed its years of endeavor by shipping ore early in 1953. In the same year... Alcan Jamaica Limited, a subsidiary of Aluminum Limited of Canada, and incorporated in 1943 as Jamaica Bauxites Limited began production locally of alumina, which is the the manufacturing of bauxite. So that's it. So so steps are bauxite alumina aluminum. Mm -hmm. And the exportation of its products to aluminum smelters in Norway. Some twelve months later, the first shipment the first shipment of Jamaica alumina reached the new Alcan smelter at Kitimat in British Columbia. Now I'm going to read an extract from um, George L. Beckford paper, The Social Economy of Bauxite in the Jamaica Manspace. If anybody need copy of this paper, please. Um DM to me either on Instagram or Twitter or um Cinema email. Um yeah, can provide that. So, and I quote, by 1957, these three companies alone had acquired some 136,472 acres or approximately 5.7% of the island's land area. Um, uh, Yes, 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 yes. So those are the figures. A fourth concern, Alcoa Minerals of Jamaica, Inc., whose parent company is the Aluminum Company of America, joined the list of bauxite in 1963. Much of, the increase, much of the increase output between 1956 and 1961 was absorbed by the United States stockpile in barter exchange for surplus U.S. agricultural commodities. During 1959, however, and again in late 1963, there were the curtailments of this stockpiling program. Towards the end of 1959, a second aluminum plant near Iwatan in St. catherine was brought into production. right, I'm going to read an excerpt from B.S. Young paper, Jamaica's Bauxite and Aluminum Industries. Again, if you want a paper to just, you know, yeah, contact us. Within 10 years after the start of productive operations, Bauxite and Aluminum rose to constitute almost half of Jamaica's domestic exports by value. The lower percentage in 1963 resulted partly from a decrease in the value of bauxite earnings, which were not entirely covered by increased earnings from alumina, but mainly from a phenomenal rise in the price of sugar on the world market. Although in 1963, only about $17 million Dollars ahead of sugar, rum and molasses put together. Alumina and bauxite now normally brings in about twice as much foreign exchange as these traditional exports combine. Yeah, yeah. hmm No, we also because <clears throat> I know we are we're great people over here. Um great students. Well, I'm a student whether <laughs> it's working professionals. Um, we have, well, I'm lying. Uh, PIOJ. Yes. The Planning Institute of Jamaica have some great papers. <laughs> and, um, if you ever had a chance to go through the the history of the economic survey in Jamaica, um, directly when it comes to the central planning unit, a part of the, the planning, the ministry, the, min, the ministry of finance and planning, um you know we did are some important figures and if you have the chance um to see these figures and to go through these figures by yourself and it comes to the bauxite industry over the years um we are reading from the economic survey Jamaica this is the year 1963 from the central planning unit of 1964 and this information is located on page 44 so basically i tell you if you want to see this information more in detail, but we'll just rough it up for now. So in 1952, bauxite exports were 240,000 long tons. In yeah, so in 1952, bauxite exports were 240,000 long tons, and then in 1963, that was 5.1 million long tons. In 1953, alumina exports were 29 thousand long tons in 1963 that was 726 000 long tons so we were putting heavy emphasis on um mining of bauxite so it become no wonder that that by the mid 60s we were the world's leading exporter of the or, or not even the mid 60s the early 60s we were the leading exporter of bauxite in the whole world right like it was bringing in immense foreign exchange, um, leading to the development of places and stuff. So it comes as no surprise that one of um, Bustamante's most famous code was um, dig up anyway, I see red dirt, <laughs> right? Which in later on we will we'll realize what dig up dig up anyway, I see red dirt had immense repercussions on us as a people. Not just the environment aspect, but people development aspect and people's health aspect. Where backside in recent years has led to a whole lot of problems, which soon get into that. But one of the issues that other persons don't know and are not aware of is that the backside industry led to an influx of white persons into Jamaica, and a lot of institutions set up to cater to these white persons, right? So, um, I'm going to read from George Beckford paper, again, the social economy of bauxite in the Jamaican man's space, right? So this is how it, the whole story of white people coming to Jamaica in the sixties, right? Um, bauxite aluminum production is capital intensive. The industry has never employed more than 1% of the Jamaican labor force and is relatively skill intensive, Accordingly, there, are, there was little or no room for the displaced peasantry to find employment in the industry. Skilled labor was drawn from the sugar industry and from the KME, and managerial and technical personnel initially drawn from North America. This company thus, thus brought with them a whole set of white people who required and were provided with special housing and social infrastructural facilities like schools for their children, clinics, recreational facilities etc and this is when you like some of these predominantly white institutions that were white schools that were set up in parts of jamaica white clinics that were set up in parts of jamaica that historically you don't see a lot of um, poor people attending working class people attending it wasn't set up for us it was set up for persons who were coming to Jamaica who worked in the boxite industry in these managerial positions right um george brickford um went on um to speak about um the race issue here and he says quote the influx of white people reinforced the old white black race cleavage in Jamaica and in this case we can speak of a ratuning of plantation society Within the backside parishes, this situation was so acute that in Mandeville, one of the main backside towns, there was an area popularly called Johannesburg as recently as the early 1970s. Um, this was um, a take on Johannesburg, um, um, capital of uh, South Africa. Uh, one of the largest cities in South Africa, one of capital, one of the capitals in South Africa, and um, you know, it was oh, predominantly black people, but all the best spaces were for white people, and white people are the minority, but really they're the majority kind of thing, because um, over the time, the 70s, you know, South Africa is still under apartheid. Um, and if you don't know what apartheid is, I've come to realize that there are a couple of people who don't know the story. We have an episode talking about apartheid on one of our podcasts. It's the Miss World podcast, where we talk about Sydney. Yeah, it's that It's that episode. So if you have time, you can go over there and listen to that. And we'll give, we give a good brief of apartheid and a couple of things. Um, he goes on to say that over time, these white ex- I can't pronounce that word. Is that, what's that? Expatriates, uh, nah, that is E-X-P-A-T-R-I-A-T-E-S. And I'm just going to say that is a synonym for people. He could have used people. Mm -hmm. Yes. Were gradually replaced by brown and black Jamaicans, but the top managerial positions are still held by white, same word, people, With the sole exception of Alcan, which in recent years appointed first a brown Jamaican and then replaced him recently with a black Jamaican general manager. The Jamaicanization of the technical and managerial ranks of the industry served to expand and consolidate the brown component within the country's um, plural society. And that the brownness, the cruel brownness um, that took place in the 60s is actually something that a lot of persons person should study, or nothing to study but read about. Uh, one of my recommendations about the brownness cr- and the evolution of brownness in Jamaica is Dr. Thim, um paper. Uh, she has a wonderful paper that was published um, in Small Acts a couple of years ago. Um, if I'm not wrong, um, it's the publication to do with the 1960s. Um, and that's doc- Dr. Mazike Them paper, right? Dr. Mazike Them she teaches at the Institute for Gender and Development Studies at Uemona. There's a slight chance me a butcher, butcher in name. I have always called her Dr. Mazike <laughs> don't know, but that's my recommendations for the paper to read about brownness. She has a really, really interesting paper that she did. About it, um, and I think I don't know if it's free online, cause I I don't know if it's free online, but you can try. But please, you can buy the the whole small acts um volume for yourself. So yes, <laughs> let we continue. So I mean, and the class issues and, and and this importation of of white people into the country was not the only problems that came out of bauxite you know like as i said before in recent years the environment is going to be brought up and what that what industry has done to the environment for persons health especially um persons of the maroon community um farmers from the, from the farming community etc etc et there was a relocation issue where you're upheaving people off the land and telling them to move there was and but most importantly there was the pay issue and by the mid 60s you kind of realized that yo black people kind of realize that oh we're working in the bauxite industry it's bringing a lot of these money but guess what we're not being paid a fair wage and the working condition that we're being employed in, no, this is this this can't work. They can't work. You understand? Like people are being sick. Insurance are there for them. Like a lot. Of, like and again, the pay was an issue. You understand? And this is the sixties in Jamaica. Like, the sixties, like you feel a feel a bubbling tension. You know, that was what the sixties was in Jamaica. Like you felt the tension, but they didn't know where the tension is coming from like but you just know that something was going to happen in the next couple of years like you felt it in the air that's by the way i see the 60s that's oh i always picture it and when i talk to people it's like there's always that thing you know and other 60s is always other situations like that there's always some kind of messiah of some sort um uh we had that during the the, the 1910s, actually. We, we, you could see that a, a form of tension was being bubbling, you know. And then we had um, Bedward, who came out of that, right? <laughs> and then um, we have Garvey, who came out of that tension, and that set the, the, the cornerstone for other things. That what came out of that tension as well was the was, Rast- was Rastafari. So you know, like the sixties was kind of like that. You know, you felt something erate happening and I still feel it now in the early twenties. I still don't see who the messiah quotation quotation but you still feel that tension that some mm-hmm. half inch. So the sixties is there and persons are like, yo we want better working condition we can't work like this fix it so it was a lot of strikes happening like hella strikes happening right and the bauxite aluminum workers are a small number very small number of people because as of 1967 roughly six thousand or so people were employed in the industry and at the time these were four major corporations so you had like this was spread along 1500 um 1500 1500 1500 persons per of the four major corporations at the time and they were all seeking better wages and working conditions like they wanted it and this is nothing new usually when you have transnational corporations because literally the major companies in Jamaica those four companies just by their just by their 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 um setup alone they are transnational corporations um TNCs nine out of ten times when TNC is coming to countries in the global south. There, not at ten times. You're going to have the exploitation of labor, right? Of persons living in that country. I mean, capitalism is going to be capitalism. You know, it's 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 life at this point. It's in it's life. It's life. Um. That's a nine out of ten times, because you have like that one exception, like that one company, which is very rare. Um, so I'm going to quote read a quote here from Radicalism and Social Change in Jamaica 1960 to 1972 by Obeka. By Obeka Gray, um, who hmm Throughout the 60s, and I well, oh, let me quote, throughout the 60s, unauthorized strikes, ghost slows and demonstrations were typical responses of labor to unsatisfactory working conditions. Indeed, at the height of the strike movement, um, in 67 to 68, <clears throat> some 138 work stoppages were recorded, were recorded, were recorded as workers grew increasingly restive. Now, at the time in Jamaica, um, Incote there at the time of Jamaica when all of these strikes were happening, you usually have organizations that was organizing and organizing on behalf of these workers and you know trying to create some kind of discussion between the employers, the government, and the workers and you know trade unions. Okay, right? <laughs> no, at the time in Jamaica, there were two major trade unions there was BITU. And the N W, and we're going to branch off into other segments of the podcast. Now, I want to I'm going to give a brief overview of both um, trade unions. All right. So first, I have Bustamante Industrial Trade Union. All right. So the Bustamante Industrial Trade Union was founded by Sir Alexander Bustamante, who would end up becoming the first PM of independent Jamaica in 1962 um there was the Bustamante Unions at first which is the accumulation of other other unions and the Bustamante Trade Unions um it came at the height of the sugar and banana strike and even the clerk strike of 1938 um and uh, it, it was so they had the Bustamante Unions and then it was eventually consolidated into the Bustamante Industrial and Trade Union and um fun fact here the BITU right, is the only trade union in the history of mankind to have the founder of, it's the founder name in the name of the organization, Bustamante Industrial, like, there's no other trade union who would, you would find, um, with that name in the thing, and I, I, so weird, I found this information by having a conversation with Dr. Mati J. Smith. <laughs> so if you are a well, he doesn't teach at UE anymore. He was the Dr. Mati J. Smith is the former department head of um the history department at Mona. He now teaches at UCL. But yeah, I was having a discussion with him earlier this year and he just dropped that. And I'm like, wow, I never knew that. That's interesting. <laughs> so just would <laughs> share that information with a lot of people mm-hmm. so um during the 1938 uh there was this thing where bustamante not in 38 38 39 and 1940 bustamante was in a note of prison right it was in a note of prison bustamante was a very eccentric man um larger than life personality it really fit his built was like like six, 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 seven, very tall about whirlwind win personality. You 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 hear him before you see him, basically, um in his years, in his active years, you know, um so a lot of the time when Bustamante was very was being very confrontational in nature. A lot of the time when he was in um um was in um prison, the especially after Sir William Grant was expelled um from BITU um sir william grant is a trade union um trade unionist um in jamaica history one of absolutely amazing but i think we, you know sir, sir, sir um sir william grant park downtown in the middle downtown kingston yeah same person <laughs> um <laughs> uh um he was a f he uh, you can see, he was basically Buster's right hand man um in 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 the b i t u and he wanted additional credit for the work that he was doing. And Buster being Buster, because Buster is very egotistical, Buster was like, yo, no, I'd be- i a me mean, run a ship here easy. And when um, Grant was not going to be quiet, he expelled um, William Grant from BITU. But um, when William Grant was expelled, and when Buster was in and out of prison, BITU was largely being run by the leading king's council in jamaica and the, the country's leading criminal attorney and um, one of the most brilliant criminal attorney in our history not even criminal attorney, attorney period is norman manley his cousin so for a brief amount of time in 39 40 41 bit was being run by norman manley in some stages right um a lot of the negotiations that were happening around that time was being done by Norman Manley. Um, uh, while his cousin was in prison at the same time, he's his cousin, main counsel, trying to get him out of prison. I know we learned that in primary school that we did that. I think, I I mean, I learned it. Um, no, in 1938, just a backtrack here. Um, the PMP was founded. The people's national party was founded and, um, it was founded by a few men. I'm still trying to say that a woman is involved, but I can't find evidence. But when I find it, I will let you all know. Because I know, I know at some point a woman had a role to play in PMP. <laughs> Besides Edna Manley, because Edna Manley made PMP logo. She's the one who designed the sun. But um, I just know for a fact that another other woman was involved and I'm going to find her name. I don't know it, but when I, when it comes to me, I'm going to find it. I'm making my life's mission. (laughs) I refuse, I refuse. Um, Yeah, so in 1938, the PMP was founded and um, it was founded by a lot of people. Um, The founding members, um, O.T. Faircloth, Nether Soul, Florenzel Gaspol, and Norma Manley, couple other people. And Norma Manley was tutored to be the president of the party. Um, O.T. Faircloth is really the the conceptualizer of BMP, um, but um, O.T. Faircloth was dark-skinned, Asian-born, and accountant. And the board thought that Norman Manley being white-passing, being brown, um, which, again, Dr. F.M. Paper addressed the Manleys and brownness um, in the 60s. Um, and he being a lawyer... You know, and that whole colonial mindset of Jamaicans, it made sense for him to be thrusted as the, the the frontman of the movement, of of the party. Um just to be note, um I know a lot of persons, even me myself have learned that Norman Manley founded PMP. That's not true. Um and funny enough, he has never said in any speeches or literature that I have read that he founded PNP. He has never said that. <laughs> that's, never, that's never been said by him. But there's a large influx of PMP members who believe the party was founded in 1972. So I'm not in a conversation with them right now. Um, tired of that. Tired of them, honestly. Um, yeah. So the PMP was founded and coming out of the PMP was a trade union advisory council, T U A C, and it was created to act as an advisory board, as an advisory board to the to the trade unions. Um, so provide legal advice and organize, organizational advice and stuff like that, and basically to represent all the unions um, to the to the colonial government at the time. And the two, the TUAC comprised Norman Manley, Buster Montee, N. A. Soul, and nine other union and non union non union leaders. Um, yeah, for persons who don't know, because I'm saying like Soul, Nethersoul. Soul Nethersoul. Nethersoul would end up becoming our first minister Minister of Finance under premiership Jamaica so I started Jamaica government from nineteen fifty five other people started at nineteen sixty two but that's just my thing that that's the way my head could work it, i still consider normally a, a prime minister because the fifties the nineteen fifties a lot of the laws that were laid down in the fifty in the, 50, in the late fifties are still it still affected Jamaica still being used in jamaica just so i start jamaica government from fifty five so I would be like first well, just suit me. Yeah, so my counting of Jamaica is fifty five and not sixty two. It's it makes sense politically <laughs> for me. Um, but oh, but after a time, Bustamante slowly withdrew the BITU from TUAC, and he withdrew himself like started to become more withdrew himself from all of that. Now in nineteen fifty forty three, Bustamante founded JLP, right, and there's a plethora of reasons why JLP was founded. A plethora of reasons. Not going to get into that episode a lot because that's so, that's a lot. And that's an episode by itself. And when um, he founded JLP, the Jamaica Labour Party, um, the BIT will become a fixed Jamaica Labour Party because Bustamante is the founder of both the party and the trade union. Fun fact here the Jamaica Labour Party, Jamaica Labour Party, um, that name was not created by Buster Monte. That name was created by O.T. Faircloth, actually. Um, the Jamaica Labour Party was actually supposed to be the original name of the People's National Party, the PMP. But in 38, after a back and forth and a large, a back and forth conversation, um, with, um, O.T. And Norman Manley, this is according to Richard Hart, by the way, <laughs> which we're going to talk about later, um. After a bit of conversation between both men, they decided that the party needed to have a more people centered um, 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 image. And so, People's National Party sounded better, right? So, but OT Faircloth earlier had, like, there's documentation of him and Jamaica Labour Party, blah, blah, blah. So, we're going to continue. So, yeah. So, basically, the way it worked was, at the time, you no, know, the 40s come on, Buster was not off two things, you know, the BITU and the JLP. And PMP was, like, right there, but PMP didn't have a trade union of their own. There was no trade union for PMP. You understand? Here's JLP with a lot, lot of these um, extern, external tis. And PMP was just there. So, PMP decided that they wanted their own trade union, and they founded the Trade Union Congress. Now, the Trade Union Congress came out of the Trade Union Council, which grouped 16 small unions together in alignment to the PMP. In contrast to the BITU, which was responsible for the foundation of the GLP in that year, in 1946, the Trade Union Congress was reorganized. The Trade Union Council sorry, was reorganized as a Trade Union Congress, and in 1948, 14 of the member unions were merged into a single union under the same name. So this was it. The Trade Union Congress. Now, they had this trade union congress, and then here comes the 1950s, and PMP is having an internal conflict. No, to note, PMP has always had an internal conflict. At every single stage of PMP development, there's always been an internal conflict. The only time in their history they don't have an internal conflict was the 70s. Because Money wasn't having that. <laughs> right? <laughs> that was 70s. And in the 90s, they were having conflict, but well, this is PJ nobody knows they were having conflict because pj locked that down like a tight ship when the two mentors of michael manley went up in election that's pj and you know great woman herself Portia simpson miller hope she's having a great day no she's <laughs> um when they both went up to run for president of the party in the early 90s it could have gotten ugly we could have gotten nasty, because these were two persons who were mentored by Michael Manley in the 70s, you know. Like, Michael Manley took them on his wings, you know? they were They were Manley's favorite people, you know. We don't know nothing, because PGL locked that down. Like, a, like anything that came out of the PMP in the 90s, a PMP did what we know. We never know. Like, the public don't know. All the attention was on JLP and their miscar. JLP was messy in the 90s and the early 2000s it'll be a mess and funny enough the mess that pmp is going through you now i don't think it's even close to jlp mess i don't think it's even close to jlp mess because when you look at mike henry and siaga going head to head i don't see that in pmp yet but i think because of social media pmp just always wants us to know what's happening like y'all are very distracting i've tell people this in their party that they are very distracting to other issues that I should be paying attention to and i do not want to be paying attention to pmp mix fix your mix in quiet i do not want to know just fix it in quiet but the fact remains that they have all they have always had internal conflict in the 60s their internal conflict was nasty right and it was the old school versus the new school um in the 80s it was the persons who wanted to stick to socialism and wanted to align with with communists um and then it was the persons who said oh Communism is dead, blah blah blah. In the in the two thousands, it was Portia Camp and the misogynist, the misogynist, misogynist the misogynistic persons and patriarchal persons in that party who never saw her as a leader. I know, twenty ten we had. This, my general, the Gen Z generation, which I am witnessing, which I'm a part of and which I am witnessing PMP is going through this thing of leadership problems, right? Of losing an election back to back and Mark Golding and his camp and persons like a mess. So there was always an internal conflict there. right? That's my say. PJ is alive. When he can, he's very responsive. Call him him, oh, in the nineties cause again, I should not be knowing what y'all are doing. Very distracting, PMP. Very distracting. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so this is PMP having an internal conflict. And the conflict came from the fact that they couldn't win an election. Because this is the camp, this is the this is the party that, you know, campaign an election. That campaign on Jamaica independence since 1938. They have been campaigning on inter- in Jamaica independence. And they still can't win an election up till then the jlp has never campaigned on jamaica independence they didn't have a very strong stance for jamaica independence and they were the one winning election but this is the thing pmp never had the personality you know jlp had the personality plus jlp had the bucket of so many different people in society and then there was also this the propaganda machine that was working against pmp in the 50s which was that the PMP was dominated by communists, and this is a communist party, which technically not wrong because they did have communists in their party, right? So by November 26, 1951, this internal conflict between the right and the left wings of the PMP erupted. And here's Michael Manley, and he's trying to serve as a mediator because that's literally Manley's, he's a lawyer, And if reading his old papers... He didn't want to leave anybody out. He didn't want to let anybody leave the party, right? He wanted the party to stand as this unified body. Oh, everything is good. But the conflict was still there. So here comes Mali, and he's trying to work as a mediator between the fractions to maintain peace between the party. The problem was um, initiated when one of the leaders of the TUC and the right-wing part, Florizel Glasspole, who we know, will become GG in later years, broke his affiliation with TUC and announced the formation of a new union, the National Labour Congress, which represented backside workers. So this is how uh, what I'm saying comes back to um backside workers. Now, um, while this is happening, you had the leaders of the left, part of pmp you know frank and ken hill those brothers richard hart everybody know richard hart and arthur henry who would become known in jamaica political history as the four h's they responded to this threat by demanding the expulsion of members of the right for their betrayal of the pmp because how are you going to break ranks with our trade union and form your own Glasspole then alleged that the left was actually attempting to seize control of the party through subversive actions. Some members of the right, that Thussie Kelly and Walter McPherson, provided documentation evidence which showed the efforts of the left to undermine PMP authority. And this documentation was papers outlining the formation of a communist party. Right. Now, <laughs> Manley is like. Right, no, we can't just expel people like this. We need an investigation. Like, an investigation need to occur. Something needs to happen. So Manly, here, go set up investigation, body for see if all of the ac- accusations that are being thrown towards the four H's is actually true, right? Because try. Because, again, he doesn't want to expel anybody. He doesn't want anybody to go. Like, because in a film an election has come up, we need for a union, <laughs> we need for a unifying image. Um, George Eaton in his book, Alexander Bustamante and Mother in Jamaica, which is one of the hardest books to find. Let me just say, Manley tried to negotiate with both sides to prevent the split. However, Ken Hill aggressively attacked PMP politics and leadership, like right in the middle of the investigation happening. Ken Hill comes out and he's like, instead, you know, saying that, yo, where we are standing for, you know, he was very much critical of the politics and the leadership. And that was when you had the result um, of the, the, the famous result of the four expulsion of the four H's from PMP, right? And um, the leadership of the party just expelled everybody. And there's malacity though, like, yo, why we just never do an investigation and done? But then this gonna happen because people were very much adamant. Um, that if they were going to win an election, we can't be driving home that we have communists here. You understand? And, but when the 4Hs went, the TUC went with them, right? That And the union, PMP didn't have a union base anymore, right? And to fill that gap, between that, was left from the TUC leaving PMP. The NWU came out of that. The NWU, the National Workers Union, was founded, and the workers' union was going to be run by Noel Nedersoul, Flor- Florizel Glasspool, and Mike and Norman Manley's younger son, right? Michael Manley, because I think at the time Douglas's oldest son was probably away. Yeah, because Douglas is one of Jamaica's most decorated sociologists, um, which, you know, a lot of people don't know. Douglas Malley. It's because he comes from a famous family. People be undermining Douglas Malley. But he has have some very interesting social... some um, papers on Jamaica's development. Just saying, if you have time to read them, them up at you, because he taught there for a while. So, if you have time to, to, to read those. But, um yeah, so it was... Noel Nedasso, Flores Les Gospel, and Michael Manley, who's fresh out of university, they were, going, they were recruited by PMP as the leaders of the NWU. And um, as most things go, they started to flourish. You know, they started to flourish. A lot of things changed during that period. Norman Manley, he started to, because of he realized the propaganda that was being spinned, the dirty communist them that started to take foot in the late 40s. Um, he started to drop a lot of his socialist rhetoric, you know, a lot of his socialist rhetoric started to be dropped from a lot of the things that he was being said. And then there's also the thing that um they started to try to get a personality, PMP. So that was when you saw the evolution of sweep them out and the broom that came out of that nineteen fifty five election. And then he's he tried to, I don't know, be I don't even know because still to this day none of the Malies can speak patois. <laughs> Norman Molly can't speak patua and michael Molly can't speak patua so <laughs> there was always that thing i've heard in few tapes michael Molly tries to speak patua but he just came across as very weird but they, they, they can't they really can't so but they, they, that was their thing of trying to win election normally you know he tried to 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 be much more engaging with people and try to put a personality and i guess it, it worked um, they end up in the nineteen fifty-five election, but also um, NWU with Michael Manley guidance, their membership totaled around twenty-five thousand um, at the expense of the BITU by nineteen fifty-two. So they were coming up in numbers. Now here we are, and um, one of the things that is coming out of this is, um, you know, Michael Manley being a very prominent leader of uh, the NWU, you know and start to make a name for himself and he right after independence he has multiple jobs right so he's a senate he became a senator um in the PNP government um he- heading the nwu and he was working as a journalist at the public opinion that's his profession by academia he studied journalism while at the london school of economics and political science which it's the left school if you were interested in going to government, interested in studying politics, and you had a left agenda, you go to LSE. You know, Oxford, you know, Harvard, you go to LSE. LSE was where you went. I, was, I left this over there. <laughs> um, that was their thing. And. um. Then he came back to Jamaica. He found He found work at Public Opinion. And the Public Opinion was the rival newspaper to the Gleaner, right? They were the leftist newspaper to the Gleaner. Because the Gleaner, between 1943 to 1985, 86, they basically served as a propaganda piece for JLP, which is so funny now that they're going through this. <laughs> they were going through this war with JLP of some sort. Like... I don't think both, I don't think both entities like each other. I'm, I, let me just say this. I get the impression that JLP does not like the gleaner. No. I, me, Davey, I get the impression. That's my, inter- I get the impression of that. That JLP don't like the Gleena. But it, which is, as i said before, it's extremely funny because y'all were besties. And we spoke at length about this, about um, the Walter Rodney episode that we did and how both entities are connected via money, via financing. Um, and, you know, so the public, op- so the cleaners over here, you know, them do anything for JLT. So the public opinion, they serve the left and progressives in Jamaica. So if you were left and progressive, had those ideologies, you work at the public opinion. And here was Michael Manley. And his, 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 he had some of the most, his co-workers were some of the most famous persons in Jamaica history. Who'd become some of the most famous persons in Jamaica history? There was Yuna Morrison, you know, famous feminist, famous organizer, first woman, um, black woman to be um, a broadcaster at BBC. Like her work that she did, you know, the first woman in Jamaica to have a newsletter, um, the Cosmopolitan. There's Amy Bailey, um, same feminist organizer, Louis Marriott. You look to Peter Abrams, um, Raja Mays. We all know Raja Mays, um, the first per- probably the first person to write about the Rastafari, um, write about Rastafari, um, I would say fiction ish. Yeah, fiction ish. Um, and if you ever want, if you have the original copy of *Brotherman*, um, if you have the original copy of *Brotherman*, and you ever wondered why it's Norman Malley who wrote the foreword of that book, if you ever wondered why of all the persons in Jamaica at the time to write the foreword of *Brotherman*, why it's Norman Malley, it's because public opinion. <laughs> I ain't going to lie to you. And public opinion was founded by O.T. Faircloth, the same persons who are, person who has said is responsible for, you know, the early conception of PMP. So that's the reason why, you know, just to show you how public opinion is really close, but they had some great persons. So here was Manley, Michael Manley, dividing his time between the public opinion, NWU and being a senator. And for if you're interested, um, the National Library of Jamaica does house... All the copies, most of the copies of the public opinion, um, right around the mid 1960s, early 19, 1960s actually, Bustamante aided in getting rid of the paper. Um, he stopped um, by way of advertisement. It was that a lot of persons weren't allowed to advertise in the newspaper and because of that the newspaper lost a lot of revenue, they basically banned advertisement from happening in the newspaper. And because of the last half revenue, the newspaper I had to close up shop. But a lot of their archi- a lot of their publications are archived. And again, housed at the National Library of Jamaica, which is in downtown Kingston, can just go and ask them if you want to see it and are you that? Funny enough, they have most of Michael Manley's papers. And it's the funniest thing you'll read because if Michael Manley published four opinions, if, he ma- if Michael Manley published four articles in a public opinion... Three of them is going to be him cussing the gleaner, saying they are trash, nothing they say is true, we're going to see the end of them. Like, he was going in on the gleaner. So, like, a lot of persons who know Jamaica political history will probably know that in the 70s, both Michael Manley and PJ walked walked down to the gleaner company and square up with them. But his beef with the gleaner went way back from his days as a journalist. He just never liked them. 'Cause I the Gleena was and it's a is it's 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 thing that I complain about on the podcast myself where I'm saying that it's very hard to document the seventies and people like, yo, when can't do more episodes from the seventies and do this, and I'm like, yo, like, of course I want to do. Like, that would be great. You know? That would be wonderful. But what we're gonna get the source from, the Because the Gleena is saying that XYZ happened and every other person is saying that ABC happened. It's just not true. <laughs> it's not true. Like a lot, And a lot of their things were spinning ways that were just questionable. So you have to be very careful when we even do episodes and we involve Gleena. And not even involve Gleena, but involve the writers of this. Because the way politics work at the time, the Gleena was very aligned with one party, with one ideology. So we can't even try that. You understand? So, yeah. But if I ever want to laugh, with my criminal my, my opinions, yeah. <laughs> interesting so when the 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 public opinion you know had to close shop all normally had to focus on no was just being a senator and heading nwu and because of that this man had time on his hands and there was a nwu was organizing a lot of strikes there was the bus strikes that were happening yes we had bus strikes just like the states not in the same um non-confrontational over race issue it was more people never did i get you um there was the jbc strike of 64 which was very famous because that was when we started to see the birth of joshua monica being laid upon michael manley that wasn't Manley laid in, in the middle of the road um basically and then there was a backside and um Strikes that were that he was organizing on behalf of N W that a lot like a lot like a lot of the strikes that were happening, um for the boxer workers was by NWU and this is where we come back to backside so we're here we don't talk about manly and N W and B I T we don't get a full view so come back to backside, and um, in the early beginnings um, you know they were doing a lot of work for them so we can go back to fifty two. Where in November of that year, for um, they created a thing where um, bauxite workers were being paid four shillings an hour, right? Which created a new bar for wage claims and set in motion a, pro- a process where for many years, bauxite workers became the vanguard for levels of wage compensation. And, um, you know... So in the sixties, when a lot of happened, you know, when pers- when the same backside workers are demanding better pay and better working conditions, both organizations, that's the NwU and the BITU, stepped in, right? And but as I said before, in the sixties there was this ten there was this tension in the air, like you couldn't place the hand on it, but you know there was a tension, and both organizations because they are aligned to political parties, the BITU, um jlp nwu pmp they they're always at conflicts they're always going head to head they were never working in collaboration with each other because a win for the union mean a win for the party which means the party can use it in political campaigns which mean elect government and they had a lot of, lot of conflict you know you, you talk about the, the the labor day conflict that we had that engulfed the 60s where um the labor day was created by Norman Mulley in 1960 to commemorate the labor rights of 1938. And um, before 1960, we celebrated May March, May 24th as Victoria's Day, which was Queen Victoria's birthday, which them teach in an England school, so she ends slavery. But not even like a her one, because I don't have time for stupidness. Um, and basically, my... Manly had some very um anti colonial stance. We know about that holiday I would know about him refusing to accept the to be knighted by the Queen. He didn't wanted the sir. So if you ever wonder why Buster Monty is knighted and not Norman Manley, they they came to him and he refused. It I heard he refused it twice. I've only seen evidence of once, but I heard it apparently he refused it twice. So mm, that's the reason why there's no sir attached to him his name but that anti-colonial stance he had was getting rid of queen victoria's day which i'm i still think canada celebrate today and um so he switched the birthday to labor day and you know everybody in in government is like all right cool and on that day you you're supposed to have working the working class issues be brought to the, the forefront you were supposed to celebrate um the working class community in Jamaica and raise um, awareness to the government and make change um, about their working conditions and their wages. That was what the Labour Day was supposed to be. And in the 60s, you'd have both N.W. and B.I.T.U. and they would march in the streets and blah blah blah. But every time they march, they would the usually fight. You understand? And. People were being killed during that fight. There was one incident where a pregnant woman was killed. And in later down in the year, you said, yo, we now nah did this you know? We now nah do this. And for a while we never celebrated it on a large scale because they were always in conflict. It wasn't until 1972 where Norman well Michael Malley, when he became prime minister, he reconstructed um Labor Day into the modern version that we know today where you give um this kind of voluntary service kind of thing that was all michael manley that wasn't the beginning stages of labor day and michael manley kicked it off like oh we're going to celebrate the working class by you know giving back <laughs> and that's still to this day how our labor day has been celebrated this large-scale national volunteerism which i mean it's a good thing yes but it takes away from the original um the original yeah, any opportunity for Bosch Michael Molly, I'm here for it. <laughs> it takes away from the original idea of Labor Day, which was supposed to celebrate workers' rights. Um we're supposed to bring forward workers' rights in the country. But um in the mid eighties we didn't celebrate work um Labor Day at all. Um <laughs> Edward, under Edward Sieger tenor as Prime Minister between nineteen eighty to eighty eight, we never celebrated a holiday. Like it wasn't a thing <laughs> <laughs> we never celebrated it, but well, that is the right episode by itself. Honestly, um, my view and a lot of political historians' view is that he cited a socialist holiday because other socialist countries celebrated liberty Cuba celebrated. There are some socialist countries in Central Africa who celebrated. Um, other socialist countries throughout Europe that celebrated. So, if we celebrated, it seems as if we're still aligned with socialism, you know, and, oh, we can't have that because deliverance took place in October of 1980, so we never celebrated it. But, yeah, but just back to the original conversation, they were always in conflict. That's NWU and BITU. Wait, pause. Oh, catch my thoughts. We started celebrating Labor Day again in 1989 when Michael Money won the election, and ever since, we have celebrated everybody All right, so, again, back in the 60s, we had this very... Nasty conflict between both, both persons, between both unions. And it was coming at the expense of work that was supposed to be done by the backside, um, backside workers. And me now gonna talk about this. I'm going to make Pernell Charles talk about this. And yeah, Pernell Charles is going to tell you about, um, how he got started in the BITU. And one of the most famous incidents that he had on this bauxite um strike on this bauxite protest
1: so yeah i saw boston Monty when i was probably about 16 years old he came into my district to campaign for gideon about that Gallimore, and the paint came and threw a stone at him he took his gun out and fire shot in the air they are running, he said, next time I'm not going to find the year. That's the first time I saw him. Um, when I was abroad, I was president of the West Indian Student Association. And so we visited the Caribbean and met all the leaders. Uh, Monte, came to Jamaica, met Sir Alexander, and we brought a resolution from the Student Association. As to how Jamaica should grow, and what are the things that needs to be done. He listened, he said, Lady B, who's talking? He said, Colonel Charles, said, son, you have good ideas. All of you have good ideas. Go back and finish your, your school, get your degree and come and help. Lady B, give them a car and let them go and tour the country. Goodbye. And uh, when I came up, I came up Sunday night, 1965, September. I went to a Monday morning with the dead. Influencer Kushira, who I met abroad. Because was Minister of State and Foreign Affairs, mm-hmm. so we visited the West Indians. And I was the president of the West Indian. So we accommodated Boston, accommodated all the Caribbean leaders. And sure, so I got to know them. I came up. Sunday night, I joined the BIT and see, I heard about myself. Kifton Stone was also up, uh, Howard, and Ireland, a graduate from Washington Power, and Errol Anderson a graduate from UWI and Sherrod, I was probably the first of the graduates to join the BIT at one time, the university graduates. So I was very happy to know Michael Manley. I like how Michael Manley spoke. He said the words that I wanted to say, the things that I would like to do, say. But then I looked at her and saw she had an argument. Because Manley was worth talking it, See, I was working. So he invited me and Errol Anderson, and we went with him. Um, after spending a few weeks with him, I joined the JP. He signed me to join the jail. And he offered me a seat in went up as a councilor and offered Errol one in Tivoli. And we got word, you know, councillors in politics. And so we went and nominated to be councillors for West Kings. And we got a letter from Buster the next day. In fact, we invited you to the union, we did not invite you to. Alec. So we went and complained to Lady B as most. So. And I said to her, Lady B, I did not know that there was a problem between the PITU and the JLP. Because I thought they oh, were well, one. You so no. Know, well, I saw most the and in the ITU and the J L P and I wanted to be like most. So I, I went in the field. So she went inside and said, Chief, and I never said that it is you who caused him to join Mr. Sierra because you want to be like you. You can't be like me. You can't be like me. What do like you mean, be like me? You wanted to swallow your so Say, Oh, that's different. All right. All right. Take them back. Take them back. And he rehired us, and we were happy there after 41 years from officer to vice president of the VH. I was because a little uh, curious mm-hmm. as to how you share a dominant union now, a dominant woman could make Michael Manley take over all the bauxite. So he was in the sugar boat but he was in the bauxite alone. So I went to you, I said, I don't understand how you're allow Michael to dominate bauxite industry and VIT is not in it. The sheriff said, Well what do you want to do? I said, I want to I want to take a try." So that time, the end of you, led by Mark Michael Manley was in charge of Alpat and in charge of Kaiser. So I first went to run Bay and got a housing scheme that was being built back on the Kaiser property, the workers to join with me. So it was the first break. We had a little riot. And the police came and locked up 11 workers. And I said, But you have to lock them up. They said, No, can't lock him up. I said, But it's me, leave They said, Well, you go out your business. I said, Well, I asked them if I could stay at the prison door. I said, Yes, you can stay outside, I'll get inside. So So I sat on the step at the prison at St. Bay, while the workers were locked away inside. And I talked to them all night, And we got meal for them the next day. Well, that case was withdrawn after a while. But the next big shop was Al Part. I a in well skills there. And I went to Alpha and had a meeting with some the workers. And I said to them, Things could be much better. For you, with one union in charge, and we don't know what happened. No challenge. So, I want to you to join me so that I get in there and so that I'm, they agree. While we were putting our members together, the NW was organizing to become the Holy Four. One day, Michael commander came. And I have a meeting at the place called Lane. And I was down there with two supporters in my car. And a big meet was going on. I know, oh, yeah. And Michael said to him on the phone, you guys who are looking job. you are not going to get any job here. Because this place is not going to be quiet. Unless you get rid of Charles from here, you won't have any peace. He never told him to go and beat me. He never told him to go and kill me. It could mean vote me out. Anyhow, on this day, the crowd was coming down behind him from up at the shop, onto to the plant, about three or 400. And a police jeep was in front. They were cut out back to Two policemen were sitting in the back with their guns, two in the front. And the crowd came and I got a little nervous. So I jumped into the police team. police looked at me and said, Oh, you're police? This is police Come out. I said, the man said, Listen, get out. You can't come into me. So I stopped, I got out. Leave my back again and the crowd kill. Right up, right up, right up, right up, right up. Michael was there. His other big boys over there, and we yeah. stopped in 250, 300 pounds. But the guard looked at me and said to Michael, he m have a gun. at me. The, the Michael turned to him in his classic way a And the guy leaned back with a 300 pound fist in this eye. Broke the glass that I had and I remember the little piece was there for my ear was a hand. This laser lava to broke, wrapped up, held down to my eye. Couldn't see what it started to blow. I pulled my gun and I shoot him. And I look at Mandy and said, You are the cause of this? Everybody run down him. You know what he said to me? He said, Down through, I'm trying to save you. He never stepped one back. The military in him, I, I, I was about the so. I better turn my car, stones, so licking out everything, windshield, side, everything. And I reversed at about 40 miles an hour and got away. I went to the hospital in Mandeville. And they were very nervous of the environment. They transferred me to Kingston. About one o'clock that night, a nurse came into the room and said, Mr. Charles, two men came to look for you. One o'clock. Like like I don't like what it looks like only hospital. It was twelve real men who came for me. Who knew? So we had a confrontation there. Police was ordered to arrest me. I was arrested and I was tried. For about seven charges at Black River, you know who was the number one uh, evidence uh, person in the evidence, Michael Mansfield. He said to the judge, I think he he was consistent. He and Chair was very good friend, right? And I think that they may have spoken." He said to the judge. I, said, I hit the guy first, which is the only lie he told, me. I couldn't be that stupid to go and hit a guy in Michael's company with 300 men, and I am looking a place to hide. So I said, I hit the guy first. He said, the young man gave him a hit, and you know it about boxing. I never saw any man took such a hit and stand up. And he laugh, and the court most laugh at the judge. court is adjourned for 20 minutes. And to keep it, they get it quiet. The jurors are coming out, and there were two little old ladies, maybe in their 60s or 70s, coming on their The lady looked at me, she said, I'm laughing after you. If I laugh after you, you're not guilty. You're not guilty at all. So the police heard. And the police came across and said, what did she say to you? I'm speaking to you. What did you say to you? Nurse, I you You're a policeman. Do you know you're not supposed to speak to a prisoner? You are correct the case was tried and I made my presentation. I told the judge, I thought that they were going to kill me. And so I fired a shot. Case closed, the jury went inside, they came up all quickly. And Allah said to me, Good sign. <laughs> Mr. Foreman, have you, have you uh, arrived at the decision? Yes, Your Honor. Well, when you stand up on a guy's court, stood up and he said, Your Honor, not guilty at all. No, not, no, 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 no. At that stage, I know I died. And the judge is saying, no, she not accepting that. But that's what the judgment meant. The said, listen, there were seven charges. They must see them one by one. Shooting within ten, not guilty. Fire within so many yards, not guilty. When you meet six, you should not get you. And the other one here, you are know, not a You're not So, the, the director of the prosecution stood up and said, Politics! Politics! Rubbish! Politics! Politics! And the judge said, Mr Carr, Mr Carr, will you join me in my office? Mr. Charles you may go. And by the time the judge took up to go in his office, I reached downstairs Stays in the car. I was his reached by the problem. So that is one, I think the worst, I do the worst one was at Jamaica, Canada. Clifton Stone was in charge of Jamaica for the union. And the NW was was there, but he was supposed to fight them. So they asked that I join him to help him. I went, we called a meeting, and we had a good support from the workers because we had a new and different you know presentation for workers. While we were speaking, a car drove into the crowd and showed one of the delegates. The delegate was on the floor and everybody started to run. So we went down and picked them up. That didn't stop the from going another three weeks. This is the part of it that I liked. There were, I think, 350 workers on the voter space. You had to get 50% plus one of those who voted in order to be the bargaining union, Michael there were, um, I think, 200 and maybe 250, 40. And I recall that I had a majority voting. I terrorized Michael, I said. Joshua, you have only 20 minutes more because the pool at the stop of 4.30 is now 10 minutes after four. You need to get 50 more workers to win. Joshua, would you like to command the sun to stand still? In order to hold the days you can find of the workers? Oh, he was so upset. He was so mad. Well, we won the poll. But because only 250, I think, of the workers voted, and I got more than him, he said that the definition is 50% plus one of the voters' list. None of us could get 50%. He went to Supreme Court. And we went to the Supreme Court. And the judge ruled that his two is 50% plus one of those who voted. And so we won't be. But Michael no. But in order to cool it down you know, among his workers, he, in my opinion, went through that. But I said something about Michael no. We had a long, but uh, I had a great operation. He taught me so many things. I told his workers, his officers, I said, you guys allow me to learn more from Michael than you.
0: So we just heard from Colonel Charles and what he had to go through <laughs> with um screwing up with Manly, which a lot of persons don't know. And the fun far funny enough, um, um, when he got arrested in 1976, um, for almost a year he was in prison under the SOE that occurred during that year. Lots of things were happening, you know. He said in an interview, in a Gleaner in interview, that. He really believed one of the reasons why Manly threw him in prison was because of that incident that happened when he shoved him gun up in his face. He really believed that, you know? Still, Manly is still a it for it. But <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. And he, he spoke about a, a lot of things, actually. And it was the hope that in recent, in the future, we'll drop other parts of that episode. Because, you know, all people like to talk. So he said a lot, a lot of things. <laughs> um, but as history would have it, um, uh, you know, the seventies came, Michael Manley became prime minister of Jamaica and the levy was placed on the backside industry. Um, that was a negotiation between, um, Michael Manley, um, the backside industry, um, part when they, you know, as a unified body and Mayor, Ma- Mayor Matalan was there as well for persons who don't know. Mayor Matalan was um he was an influential Jewish Jamaican, but probably the most um important political insider to Jamaica, actually. Like it's not even trip. Like he that man is involved in he was involved in like every single developmental policy that was laid out in Jamaica from nineteen sixty go right back to early two thousands. Um Mayor Matalan. I mean the Matalan family is kind of famous, but Mayor Matalan like he he's he served I think my, he served all but one of Jamaica's prime ministers, starting from Norman Maligo right up to Bruce Golding. That was how influential he is. He was a political insider. To learn more about him, my recommendation is um, Dr. Diana Thorburn's book, Mayor Matalan, Business, Politics, and the Jewish Jamaican Elite. If you ever want to learn more about the Matalan family, but Maya Matalan in particular the work that was done in portmore of developing portmore his work with the manly um all of that definitely be that book that's Mayor Matalan: business politics and the jewish jamaican elite we're gonna link it on the page and the yourself dr diana thurburn big up herself um a lot of persons know know her for her work with capri she's a researcher over there but um yeah she wrote the book and the book was absolutely amazing i learned a lot so for your work and time, Dr. Thorburn, big up yourself. Um, definitely get a copy guys, you know, support, support, support the, the Jamaican authors and researchers and stuff. Um But yeah, so as you know, Mali nationalized the whole um industry. Um and that was you know, that wasn't the writing The writing on the wall was there already because um, the, one of the first persons who proposed a nationalization of the backside industry was um, Dr. Norman Gervan, who I've spoken about on the episode already. Um, we spoke about him doing the Walter Rodney episode. Um, Dr. Norman Gervan wrote this paper as to why we should nationalize the industry. And then he went on to serve as an as a, as a, as a, as a advisor to Manley. You know, Manley had all the nice advisors, all of them, you know, Michael Manley, for all, I'm here to him. Yeah, all the nice people. Yeah, Nettle Ford, um, Lu- um, Lucille was there as well. Um, Doctor Orlando Patterson, you know, serve as an advisor to him. And if you haven't read um, the Confounding Island, please do. That's also a great, a great book um, to understand the bo- to understand the seventies and the, the, some of the policies that were placed in the seventies. That's a good book as well. So. Um, the nationalisation of the backside industry happened, which me, Matt Davy, I believe that was when the US started to take, pay attention to Jamaica when Manley nationalised that industry and what came out of that industry. Um, yeah, the socialist and the socialist things and the whole um, democratic socialism and the Cuban alliance. Like, yeah, sure, but um, I really believe they started to pay attention when the nationalisation of the of backside industry took place because money you have to play with. You see me? So I think that was when you started to see quotation, quotation, destabilization efforts. <laughs> um, but yeah, that nationalization of the backside industry fund a lot of our programs in the seventies that Manly's famous for, you know, those social programs. Um, so, and we know in later years, what would come off the backside industry um, in the seventies, we were overtaken by Australia as the leading um, exporter of the ore of bauxite, and in the eighties, um, Guinea rose prominent. So we were like the third in the industry, but we still benefit from them today. You know, we still benefit from the from the industry today, but at what expense? And um, in the seventies, eighties, in the eighties, nineties, and the two thousands, the, the bauxite industry has faced. A lot of backlash especially when it comes to the environmental aspect when it comes to again persons of the maroon community small farmers rural areas and what it will do to our watershed um and our air and our air quality so earlier this year checkmate which is 10 which is tenement yard Sisters pod, sister podcast, that's our political podcast. We had a great conversation with um Diane De- She's the founder and director of the Jamaica Environment Trust, J E T. all at the time, Jet, she was director. I still think she's director. Um they dropped a publication in early 2021 called Red Dirt, a multidisciplinary review of the bauxite aluminum industry in Jamaica. And it went on to describe the history and the regulatory framework and investigation of the bauxite industry in Jamaica, land, economy, and people for almost seven decades. Um, they didn't go into a, a lot of the history that we did today, but this is just me providing an upfront of it, if you're going to read it. So, but it did provide a lot of uh, a, a data and history, Post eighties, nineties, two thousand. So p- please definitely go ahead and read that. it's they have two versions. There is the full document, and there is the executive summary. The full document is like four hundred plus pages. The executive summary is like a hundred and odd pages. Um, but if you can't read it, please listen to our podcast episode on it. It's titled "Jamaica Backside Aluminum Industry." It's episode eight of season three, and we're going to link it. On this podcast page, podcast episode page, so you guys can listen to it if you want. So it it it's a follow-up to this episode, if you haven't listened to it as it, to understand what happened to the bauxite industry. Because um, it's like, it's providing all of this money, but is it worth it? Especially from, you know, an environmental aspect, a people aspect, a social aspect, especially when it comes to climate mitigation, that as a vulnerable country, you know, so... Yeah, big up the the Jamaica Environment Trust for great work that they did on that paper. Really, and I really enjoyed that interviewed interview. I don't host. Checkmate. That's Paige, host checkmate. But for this one, um, I did step in. You know, as a guest. I step in from time to time when Paige is busy. So, but Paige, big up yourself. Fave over here. Always a fave. <laughs> um, and before I go, I want to say two things. Um, it's funny. Whole life is whole life works because. The only documentation, the only paper, full-length study that has been done about the bauxite industry and relation to Jamaica's public health, public environmental health, was actually done by um, Patrice Charles Freeman, who is Pernell Charles' daughter. She's the only person to be to have to, to, to do a study on the bauxite industry and the environmental health um, aspect. Is it, Mister? Life comes at you fast. So, Doctor Charles Freeman, yeah, We <laughs> yourself for that. And Pernell Charles' son, Pernell Charles Junior, um, he serves as the Minister of Environment, Urban Renewal, Climate Change, and Housing in twenty twenty one in the JLP go- GLP government. Um, I personally have my beef with that ministry, but that's just me. Um, I mean. It, co- it comes with it comes with me because that's my academia, so vibes. Um but um yeah. <laughs> so just a look I I don't know, full circle life right there. That yeah, but yeah. But big up um Pernell Charles for coming on the podcast and you know, talking about it. It's our first co host, this is our first co host that we have had to speak about an incident that he has witnessed and it was pretty interesting um to hear him talk about that um really 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 pretty interesting to hear him talk about that um absolutely amazing the stories that he told us he was him old so he has a lot of things to say (laughs) so in recent times we're gonna drop some snippets either on our social media platform so please follow us on instagram and twitter or you know we're gonna do other things like this and you know have more co-hosts um this interview was done at the jlp headquarters um yeah so big up to i never i don't remember her name i don't remember her name but the tall she light skin. she's very tall lady i think i think she's the administrative person up at jlp big up yourself mom she was very nice she was very accommodating when we explained to her what we're doing um them set her up in a room and a bag of things we get back to water so, big up on the for that. I um, appreciate the hospitality that we have gotten. But I mean, both I mean, polit- political parties have treated us cool. Um, So, yeah. So, but maybe I appreciate the water. <laughs> so, uh, shout out to them for accommodating us. The, the, the security guard will work there. The man in need for Bill. Because Jamaican security guard take them job too serious in instance we don't have to take them job too serious so that particular security guard who was working on that particular friday if you are listening to this yeah are we yeah this is us we're still upset we're still upset because we don't know we're tired Jamaican security guards but (laughs) yeah big up to jlp for facilitating us and you know putting us in contact with dr pernell with pernell Charles, sorry and um you know, having us with this whole conversation, that we have, a regular three hour conversation I'll have with him. So it was pretty cool. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's the episode. Um, thanks everybody for listening. I hope you learned more about the the industry. Um, and please, as I said before, go ahead and listen to the, um, the checkmate podcast, um, episode that we did. It's really important to understand the context. Um, I'm your host, Davey. Um, and this has been another episode of the. Let's you forget podcast, a uh, historical podcast by Tenemential Media. So yeah, you know, be see if when you for any, uh, travel upon and, uh, later.